are so excited uh, this evening about uh, feeling the presence of the Lord and what God's doing at Life Church, and uh, we are continuing tonight our series um, in Genesis. And uh, so, before we uh, transition at this point, I want to remind you: this Sunday we're continuing our First Love series, and our, our theme this Sunday is "All of Me." And um, hopefully. What we, uh, what the Lord gave us this last Sunday. Hopefully, somebody's put it into practice this week, and uh, uh, and made some choices, time-wise, uh, about those things that are important to us. Uh, so, what we'd like to do right now is we'd like to dismiss uh, the Bridge Student Network, and also our kids. It's neat because our kids, all of our kids, are going to be uh, doing a children's choir, and so they're getting ready for that. And uh, uh, Sister Brown's going to be teaching them some songs and once a month they'll be in there so we'll get to uh, be blessed with them amen praise the Lord I want to read a verse of scripture from Genesis chapter number 37 and uh, verse 31 chapter Genesis chapter 37 and verse 31 it says it says and they took Joseph's coat and killed a kid of the goats and dipped the coat in the blood. And they sent the coat of many colors and they brought it to their father and said, This have we found. Know now whether it be thy son's coat or not. And he knew it and said, It is my son's coat. An evil beast hath devoured him. Joseph is without Doubt rent in pieces. And Jacob rent his clothes and put sackcloth upon his loins and mourned for his sons his son many days. All his sons and daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, For I will go down into the grave unto my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. It's interesting here when you look at this story from the book of Genesis that uh, Joseph was in fact not dead and he hadn't been torn by beasts. In reality, he was in Egypt and God's plan was being beautifully orchestrated. But the evidence that was presented to, to Jacob was this coat that was torn and dipped in blood. And uh, if you were in Jacob's shoes, you probably would come to the same conclusion that your son had been destroyed or eaten by wild beasts. But the reality was that he hadn't been. And uh, one of the uh, things, the, the main thing that we're talking about tonight is the rejection of the Genesis account as a result of uh, the widespread acceptance of uh, the theory of Darwinism. And um, when people accept or believe that, um, that there is no God, but that all of life is a result of evolution that was started by a cosmic accident that created life out of, by chance. When people began to believe this, when this uh, began to be promoted by scientists and come into uh, culture. Many people, when they saw the evidence, they assumed that it was true. And as a result, then, that there was no God. And they begin to live their lives based on the assumption that, uh, that there was no God because of the evidence that was being presented. They made a bad choice. And uh, I think it's important that rather than taking a few pieces of evidence that are presented to us, Let's dig down, amen, and uh, first of all, find out what the Bible says and uh, put our faith in the Word of God. And uh, what I've discovered and realized in serving God is that His Word will stand every test. Every test, whatever the generation is, whatever the era is, His Word will stand the test. So, Genesis chapter 1, we'll go back to Genesis chapter 1, and uh, verse 1. Genesis 1 and 1, the Bible says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. 
And the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the earth. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Verse 3, And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And in Genesis chapter number 2, Genesis chapter 2, and verse... Number six, I'm sorry, number seven. And the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. Lord Jesus, we pray right now that for the next few moments that you would cause us to gain great understanding and insight through your word to the things uh, that matter and the foundations of life. I pray, Lord God, that... uh, uh, we would uh, expand our minds and expand our, th- our thinking uh, through the Word of God today. We pray uh, that our faith would be strengthened in Jesus' precious name. And everybody said, Amen. Amen. And you may be seated. We're studying, <clears throat> beginning to study the book of Genesis. And uh, it is the seedbed of all the major doctrines of the Bible. And uh, it is the, the book of basics. Uh, because everything that um, uh, is in the Bible starts in Genesis. And uh, I just realized that my iPad has 12 font. That doesn't work for me anymore. I'm making it 14 now. <laughs> so to know Genesis is to know the fundamentals, truths of the Bible. And God revealed the story of the creation and the beginning of time to Moses when he was up on the mountain. And uh, there on Mount Sinai, God revealed or showed to Moses, as the Bible says, that Moses and God were intimate and uh, uh, friends and visited as we would visit face-to-face around a table. And God shared with Moses the origin um, of all things. And Genesis, then, is Moses' writing, but it is, of course, inspired by God. As we said last week, the opening statement, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, is a statement of truth that has to be received by faith. If you're looking for proof of the creation, you're not going to find proof of the creation because then it wouldn't be accepted by faith any longer. Faith is the evidence of things not seen. So if you see, if you have evidence, then it requires no more faith. And so this is to be accepted by faith, as the Bible says in Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, through faith, we understand that the worlds were framed by the word of God so that things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. And uh, last week we talked about how the Lord created all things through the power of his word. Psalms 33 and 6, by the word of the Lord were the heavens made and all the host of them by the breath of his mouth. Last week we talked about in Genesis chapter 1, uh, the seven days of creation and specifically what the meaning of a day was. And some of the various ideas or theories uh, from theologians about whether the day represented a 24 hour period or maybe a thousand year period or an age uh, of time, and uh, how the Bible leaves room for a variety of interpretations. So people sometimes are like, well, what does it mean, Pastor? You need to tell us what the truth is. And uh, I said, well, I'll tell you what the Bible says. Amen. And if the Bible, uh, if if it were God's will for us to understand everything, then he would have shared everything with us. And one of the uh, curious things in in the first part of Genesis is where the Bible talks about the giants or the Nephilim, where the sons of God married the daughters of men. And people are like, what is that? Were they angels or were they children of Seth uh, that married children of Cain? What does it mean? And, uh, And my response is, if God wanted us to know what it meant, he would have told us, right? So in the meantime, we can theorize all day long, uh, but the reality is we can only go as far as the Word of God lets us go. And if somebody says, well, the Lord showed me that this is what this means, uh, that's a problem. Amen? Because uh, it's not for a private interpretation or private uh, revelation. It's something that should be able to be 
discovered by all of us. So today, I want to talk about the great uh, debate that apparently now in the scientific world is settled. The debate between creation and evolution. And this is a battle uh, that began in the mid-1800s when a man named Charles Darwin wrote a book in 1859 called The Origin of the Species. And uh, he studied various animals on the Galapagos Islands uh, that were separated from one another, that were of the same species. However, um, uh, time and uh, um, uh, uh, the, the basic things that were environments had caused the various animals to adapt to their surroundings. And so with much study and uh, observing fossil records and so forth, he came up uh, with a theory. And uh, the theory of evolution, or it's also called uh, natural selection, is a theory that says all animals are related and they come from common ancestry. In essence, every living animal on the planet uh, came from one original single-cell, self-replicating, microscopic animal millions and millions and millions of years ago. And over time, these uh, animals uh, or uh, microscopic creatures began to adapt and mutate uh, and um, based on their surroundings and based on what it would take to survive. And um, probably the the visual that um, is kind of clearest tells the story of evolution as proposed by Darwin is the idea of a tree that branches out and then it branches again and then it branches again. And so each of the places where it branch, branches is called the nodes of life on the tree of life. And this would be where the, the animals would, uh, would, would transition into various life forms. So this uh, uh, theory um, started out as it's pretty fanciful, not uh, accepted by very many people. And uh, however, it has become kind of accepted thought within the scientific community. And I just want to share with you a little of my story. Um, as a young man that was raised in church and a young man that uh, was uh, presented with the theory of evolution as a 10th grader uh, sitting in a biology class. And uh, I remember the statement. I remember the statement. The statement was, human beings are animals. Human beings are animals. And it just like hit me. We're animals? And uh, then begin to look at the uh, the taxonomy charts that showed the uh, uh, the animals and how they were uh, in in part of a particular ki- the kingdom kingdom and then uh, genus and uh, I don't remember all the terms uh, where uh, it, it was the the various divisions until finally among our family members the primates was the human being and uh, I remember. This just really kind of shocking me a little bit as I begin to think about it and I begin to consider uh, the implications of this. And uh, I went home and told my mom, I said, did you know that we're animals? And uh, she said, sometimes you act like an animal. She she said, uh, no. She said, we were created in the image of God. And God breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. So uh, so we're not animals. And then uh, <clears throat> um, I, I, I shared with her our position on the taxonomy chart and showed her, you know, the similarities between donkeys and horses and wolves and wolves and dogs and so forth. And uh, <clears throat> and then as we continued the study in class, I found out that the uh, that, that the uh, reason for the taxonomy chart had to do with where we came from and the idea of evolution. As I later got into college, this was something that really uh, occupied my, my, my time in thinking uh, and um, uh, brought questions and doubts into my mind as to whether God really did exist, whether 
God was real. And the, and the crazy part about it is I could remember all the miracles that I'd seen and all the times that the Spirit of God had touched me and the powerful moves of the Spirit that I knew were real. But then at the same time, I was looking at all of this evidence. And here's the deal. It wasn't just that they were saying this is a theory. Even though they called it a theory, they were presenting it as accepted fact, right? And so this is what uh, created a great challenge because it's almost like you can follow the fairy tale of religion or you can accept the fact of evolution. It's your choice. That's the way it was presented. And so as a and I think this is important to understand because your children when they go to high school and college, these types of questions are going to be uh, brewing in their spirit because for me, I, I was a believer. I believed in Jesus Christ. I believed in God. I believe he created all things. But at the same time, it's, uh, things were being presented to me that I'd never seen before. And it was very compelling, uh, the apparent evidence of uh, the theory of evolution, evolution, but but some of the things that are interesting as uh, I got older and began to do some study, I realized that it wasn't a fact that evolution was not a law, but evolution is a theory. Uh, Newton's laws are proven because they're observable and repeatable and subject to the scientific method, but. Ideas about origins and even ideas about uh, the theory of evolution are theories because they're not observable and they're not repeatable. Now, the, the majority of Christians have rejected Darwinism as contradictory to Scripture. A few of them have tried to harmonize Scripture with evolution by attributing the start of the process to God. They say God started it. And then evolution took over. This is called theistic evolution. People that believe that God started at everything and then turned it over to the process of evolution. Now, we mentioned just briefly last week, but I, I want to uh, define some terms for you. Because really, for us to say we don't believe in evolution, it's better for us to say we don't believe in macroevolution. Because there's a difference between macroevolution and microevolution. And you say, what's the difference? One's tiny and one's big. No. Macroevolution is the belief that everything living on the planet originated from one source. Micro, let's step back. What does evolution mean? Evolution means change over time, right? And uh, I look at some of your pictures from back when you were 20. And I see you now. I believe in evolution. Change over time. And so microevolution is proven. It's a fact that species adapt over time. Uh, for instance, there are uh, a type of moth that when they're in the country, their coloring is lighter. When they're in the city where it's sooty and more smut and dust, then they become darker. Not because the soot has made them dark, but genetically a gene has switched. And so uh, switched on or off that uh, allows them to blend in with their surroundings. And so as you look at uh, the record of the fossils, the fossil record, you discover that there is adaptation over time. Uh, and that's the reason where you see different uh, skin spig uh, pigmentation. And uh, this is a, a product of change over time because of surroundings. That's microevolution. And when you look at the fossil record, you see this. But it's not major change. It's a little change here, a little change there, a little change here. It's kind of more static, kind of up and down based on surroundings. But the idea of macroevolution, and here's the difference. Microevolution is change over time, but the species stay the same. 
Macroevolution means change over time that eventually creates a new species and then goes into multiple different species so that it started from one and goes into a multitude of various species. So the thing that I want you to know is that as Christians, we certainly would accept microevolution, limited evolution within species, and at the same time reject the idea that life evolved from inorganic matter and progressed through stages until man finally appeared. Is that fine? You understand? So uh, macroevolution, the idea that living came from non-living material through spontaneous generation, the idea that all organisms came from this living substance over a long period of time. And significant changes gave way to new forms of life because of environmental factors. And this is where the idea of the survival of the fittest comes in. And all of this happened or happens accidentally. Evolutionists see no need to find purpose in the universe or belief in a personal God because evolution is a process that is prompted by environment and happens uh, by accident. And, of course, they use, first of all, historical evidence. What they would call evidence is the fossil record and comparative, which is the similarities of animals' anatomies and, uh, and their uh, DNA. But there are some problems with the theory, some major gaps in the theory of evolution, which... If you think about it, it's presented as scientific. There's a verse of Scripture I want to read right now, and we'll, we'll jump back into this. But the verse of Scripture um, is in, in the book of 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20. Because people have presented the idea that on the one hand you have science, and on the other hand you have theology or religion, and they're in a fight with each other. They're in conflict with each other. But I believe it's important to understand that science and religion are not in a squabble with one another. Because what does science mean? Anybody know what science means? What does science mean? What is the root word of science? It simply means knowledge. Knowledge. Science means knowledge. But here in... uh, in this uh, verse of Scripture, 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 20, it says, O Timothy, keep that which is committed to thy trust, avoiding profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so called, which some professing have erred concerning the faith. Grace be with thee. Amen. This is pretty powerful right here if you think about it. It says, avoid, go back to that verse 20. It says, avoid profane and vain babblings and oppositions of science falsely so-called. Falsely so-called, that means something that's presented as science that's not really science. Because when people receive the oppositions of science falsely so-called, look what happens in verse 21. It says, as a result, some professing have erred concerning the faith. So, faith has no gripes with science. But faith has issue with science falsely so-called. Science falsely so-called. So, what is science? We talked about Newton's laws, right? The laws of Newton. Science is knowledge, and knowledge must be proven. Otherwise, it's supposition or speculation. So true science is something that has been proven as knowledge. Science falsely so-called would be theories, ideas, and speculation. So the Bible says, watch out for science falsely so-called. Now there's a uh, a man, uh, uh, Arlo Mullenpaul, some of you have met uh, Brother Mullen Paul before, and uh, he is, uh, uh, has a doctorate degree in chemistry. And uh, he kind of explained to me and shared with me why the theory of evolution 
would fit perfectly into the category of science falsely so-called. He said because in order for something to be called science, it has to be subject to the scientific approach. Remember in school, do you guys remember? Uh, at least this is what we did back when I was in school. There was a theory. You, you, you presented a theory. This is the scientific method. You pre, uh, present a theory. And then you have to test the theory with experiments. And then if the experiments prove or reinforce the, uh, the theory, then the theory transitions from a theory to what? A proof. Remember that? From a theory to a proof. And so, in order for it to move from theory to proof, it has to be observable and repeatable. But origins and evolution is neither observable nor repeatable. Why is it not observable? Because nobody was there but him. Right? Nobody saw it. And it's not repeatable uh, because nobody's ever created life from non-living stuff. It's not repeatable, and uh, it's not observable. So to really call it science is a misnomer. They, they say it, they, they call it, this is what they call it, forensic science. Forensic science. What's forensics? Well, forensics is when somebody comes into a crime scene and tries to figure out what happened based on like the footprints and the splattering of the blood or, or uh, uh, the, the, the signs of trauma to the Bible. To, to, I'm sorry, to the to the body <laughs> trauma to the body and uh, so then they try to recreate in a sense well this is what basically they're doing trying to recreate based on the observations of what they see in, uh, in the creative world but you cannot call it science unless it is proven and even the staunchest of evolutionists they would say oh it's a settled case but if you really pushed them they would have to admit that this has not been proven. Let me read a few quotes here from, uh, uh, from some, some uh, Darwinists. This is uh, the guy named Francis Crick. If you, if you studied uh, biology in school, you certainly would have heard this name. Francis Crick was a Darwinist, and he was the co-discoverer of DNA, deoxyribonucleic acid, which is the, um, that uh, ladder, that, that twisting ladder that basically tells your body what to do as it develops and grows and uh, 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 learns to advance, reproduce, and so forth. He said, every time, I rate, uh, every time I write a paper on the origin of life, I swear I will never write another one because there is too much speculation running after too few facts. Too much speculation running. And this is not a critic. This is one who is a Darwinist. A guy named Hubert Yockey, who is a physicist and information scientist, says the belief that life on earth arose spontaneously from non-living matter is simply a matter of faith in strict reductionism and is based entirely on ideology. Did you hear that? The idea that life sprung randomly from nothing is, takes faith. Let me just say something right now. Darwinism is a religion. Mm -hmm. Darwinism is a religion that, that creates a situation where you're not responsible to a moral God. And allows you to live however it is uh, that you want to. Listen to this, this quote right here. I think this is powerful. This is a, a Darwinist leader, Julian Huxley. He said, The reason we accepted Darwinism even without proof is because we didn't want God to interfere with our sexual mores. We wanted a life that was free from the responsibility of a God. This is the thing that, 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 that has to be established in our minds and our spirits. And that is that... Believing in evolution takes as much faith, probably more faith, than to believe in a creator that created everything and set it all in motion. So, as uh, uh, evolutionists theorized, 
and and tried to um, uh, come up with a timetable and a pattern and all of these things uh, of of uh, how everything transpired as they were trying to put all of this together they found out that there were problems with the fossil record and this is Charles Darwin himself said this is the biggest problem with my theory is that there are no transitional fossils no significant transitional fossils which means at the branch of the tree of life when the animal branches into two different types of animals the common ancestor branches into two where are the fossils that represent that transition time and it's curious that at those nodes of transition there is a glaring lack of fossil record so much so that currently evolutionists say the fossil record doesn't matter we have all the proof we need in uh, in the genetic code so there's no need to even look to the fossils anymore well there's a reason why you can't find the fossils, right? There's a reason because they, they, this isn't a matter of them having found two or three fossils. This is a matter of a, of a uh, over the years, expansive fossil record and no significant, noticeable transitional fossils. It is certainly, certainly very telling. And they come up with theories as to why uh, those, th- those types of fossils aren't available so here's two of the problems here's two of the problems with evolution number one there i'll say it this way there are two pillars that have to be in place for um for evolution to be correct and there's problems with both of these pillars the first one is in order for there to be evolution there has to be abiogenesis Abiogenesis. What does that mean? That life emerged randomly and blindly from non-living matter. That has to be established because it had to start somewhere, right? And then number two is what we just mentioned, transitional forms. These millions of adaptations and mutations from so-called lesser life forms to evolving life forms, there has to be there has to be these transitional forms. If either pillar is missing, the Darwinism theory of humanity cannot be considered a fact. And uh, we already mentioned the absence of transitional fossils. But probably the most powerful thing that reveals... Uh, you remember the story of the emperor's new clothes? And, and nobody realized, or everybody realized except him, that he wasn't wearing anything. And, and this is... Uh, Uh, What reveals evolution for what it is, is the absence of any kind of observable abiogenesis. There is no scientific evidence that has ever been demonstrated to show that life can come from non-living material in a process of blind chance. Therefore, Darwin's necessary pillar of abiogenesis is eliminated. So... It went like this. When when Darwin first created the theory, this was back in a time when uh, science was um, very crude and medicine very crude in comparison to now. In fact, just a little bit before, they had believed that life could spring from non-living things, right? So they would uh, have uh, rotting meat, and and, uh, that sounds delicious, doesn't it? I'm just trying to wake you up. They would have rotting meat, and then they would see that it would breed maggots and flies. And they're like, look at this, living matter. And so it was just kind of accepted. It wasn't that big of a stretch to believe that living matter could come spontaneously from non-living stuff. You understand? Until they discovered and realized that these larvae and flies weren't spontaneously coming from the dead meat, but that they were eggs that were planted by flies. And whenever they took the meat and they sealed it off, nothing happened. Or if they kept flies away, nothing happened. So they, it was kind of a, a development. And then, and then after that, they learned uh, the, the, the germ theory, which let, let, uh, kind of reinforced the idea that 
Living matter can only come from living things. So now Darwin's got a problem that he didn't even really look into that much. And so uh, scientists then begin to believe that uh, uh, that there was this uh, what they call primordial soup in a warm planet and uh, uh, that energy or lightning passed through it. And in some chance, by some chance, it created uh, it created these uh, uh, things that are the building blocks of life. And uh, I'm trying to think of the word right now. Proteins. Proteins. The building blocks of life. And, uh, and that these proteins aligned and created the first self-rep- self-replicating organism. But here's the deal. And so they did all kinds of experiments to pass light through getting just the right... Uh, uh, amount of raw materials together and passing energy and light through it over and over and over again. And the watershed moment in the uh, early 1900s when they passed light through it and it created a molecule. And they're like, smoking gun, we found it. This is how it happened. Created a molecule. But what they could never have realized at that point was how big of a leap it would be to move from a protein or a protein from a single protein to an actual self-replicating organism. They thought, well, that's just one step to the next step. Absolutely not. Because as they begin to discover DNA, they realized that self-replicating organism, the simplest one, is more complex than they ever could have imagined in terms of See, and and hopefully I can explain this to you real quick. The way DNA works, DNA is an arrangement of these proteins in certain ways. There's a a base number of proteins. I think, I can't even remember. I should have known. Is it four? Four proteins? And they're they're, uh, put together in such a way that they communicate a plan to the organism of what they're supposed to do. So, do you remember when they started programming computers? What did they use? They used binary code, right? Ones and zeros. Brother Steve could probably tell us about that. And you could tell, you could teach the computer to run a program by how the ones and the zeros were arranged. Am I correct on that? By the way you put them together, it's a code that tells the computer what to do. If you push this button, then it knows to execute this. But it doesn't, it's not figuring it out, right? Everybody understand the computer is not figuring out how to do your stuff. It's just doing what it was programmed to do by arranging the ones and zeros in such a way that it communicates a plan, a program to the machinery. And what they discovered when they discovered DNA is that DNA works in a very similar way to the binary code, but instead of just one and zero, it's four different proteins that work together to tell your body what to do. And listen to me right now. Your human body is more complicated and more sophisticated than any computer that's ever been made. And to think, just to think, that this program came together by chance is unthinkable, right? It's unthinkable. And we, we used the example last week on, on one of these computers. What if you were playing Space Invaders? Anybody remember Space Invaders? Or how about Pac-Man? Anybody remember Pac-Man? Like you're playing Pac-Man and you're playing it and all of a sudden Pac-Man starts doing stuff that it wasn't planned to do. And, and before you know it, few years down the road, Pac-Man learns how to do your taxes. And, and Pac-Man figures out how to do... No, the computer program can only do what it's programmed to do. And so there is a designer behind it all. There is an intelligent designer that created the DNA in your body. That tells the little baby in the womb, who were you there when God caused the bones to grow in the womb of your mother? You weren't there. What caused it to happen? How did this happen? There was a programmer and a creator. And uh, somebody said, well, God didn't create me. Mama made me. But who caused the bones 
to grow in your mother's womb. There was a programmer and a creator, amen, that put it in motion. And uh, uh, when, when the problem is, was when you get a, a, uh, um, uh, an evolutionary scientist and a mathematician together, they got problems. Because the mathematician says the likelihood or possibility of these molecules lining out into a program by chance is absolutely unthinkable. It's absolutely impossible. You've heard the description before. It'd be more likely. It'd be more likely than an ex- for, for that to happen, for an explosion to happen in a scrapyard. And when the smoke settles, there's a fully functional jet sitting there as a result of the explosion. Think about that. It's not going to happen. But this is the idea behind life in all of its complexities, just the human body. And there's so many things that along the way that, uh, for instance, the eye, the eye, the eye serves no purpose until it's fully formed. So how could it go through millions of years of a process of developing when it has no purpose until it's fully formed. Think about that right now. Somebody created the eyeball. And so as you begin to dig in, you, you discover uh, that, that there, and, and this is the amazing part, is that there is, you guys like conspiracy theories? There is a strong conspiracy against creationism. There is a strong conspiracy against intelligent design. If you promote the idea that there was an intelligent designer, you're not getting any grant money. You're not getting any positions in the colleges because they've already decided that evolution is a fact. Isn't it crazy? Science, by its very definition, is nothing is off limits. We've got to look at every possibility. And here we have something that's never been proven. And they're like, you can't look into that possibility. You can only look into these possibilities. It lets me know that something's at work there. There's a deception that's at work. Because remember, there were two trees in the garden. The tree of knowledge and the tree of life. And when you become enamored with the tree of knowledge, you might miss out on the tree of life. Amen. Praise God. Praise the Lord. So, before we close up tonight, there's a couple of other things that... um, Uh, That I want to mention. That um, our questions from Genesis. What time is it? Okay. In about five minutes here. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to wrap it up. And uh, as we launch into the creation of the fall of man next week. Here's some questions that we want to ask and answer. Number one is, was there a pre-Adamic race? So what does that mean? Was there any people before Adam? We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the idea that there are uh, carbon dating of human fossils from 50,000 years ago. We're going to talk about the age of the earth. We're going to talk about the gap theory which when we read uh, Genesis chapter 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, verse 2, and the earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep. Well, how long was it between verse 1 and verse 2? Some people believe that perhaps there was a gap of time and that God created the earth and then it fell into a state of chaos. Some people hypothesize that's when Satan was cast from heaven. It brought chaos on the earth. And this was before Adam was created. Because you know the snake was already in the garden when Adam was created, right? And so it's very, very interesting uh, things that we'll look into that various people uh, look at and uh, believe. We'll talk about the genealogy and how they count out the fact that we are roughly 6,000 years from Adam based on genealogies. But uh, what are some different viewpoints on that? Um, And then, um, uh, finally, we will get into uh, the story of the creation of man and uh, the fall of man. So, let me just uh, finish up by 
closing out the story of my own faith crisis because when I was uh, basically struggling with these questions of all the evidence that was being presented and, 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 and today I presented the other side of the story to you but that wasn't presented to me uh, when, when I was studying science in school and uh, going through my, my college education and so it, it, it created frustration in me now maybe your issue isn't science but I'm sure all of you have had those moments where you struggled with frustration in your thoughts. Some of it may be like, why, why do people have to suffer if there's an all-powerful God? These are the types of questions that drive you nuts and keep you awake at night. Anybody else's mind work overtime sometimes? You can't turn it off? And, and it makes you, like, uh, get frustrated. Because uh, what I was going through was I had two competing ideas that were working in my mind at the same time. And... Um, this is called, um, when you have this kind of thing going on in your mind, it's very, very stressful. It's called cognitive dissonance. That in your mind there's two competing thoughts, and it's almost like you can't sleep, you can't rest until it's resolved. And it's stressful. And uh, I was a young man, and I, I loved God, and I was serving in a church. And at the same time, when I'd get alone, these thoughts would come up again, and these questions would, would continue to plague me. And I remember it reaching the point where I even said, well, why, why should I even live for God? Or why should I even hold on to these convictions when all these things are not settled in my mind? And here was the big thing. The enemy stepped in and sought to convince me that since I had questions like this, that I no longer had faith in God. That my faith in God was invalidated by the questions that I was struggling with. But the reality was, is I was just deciding what I believe. Because up to that point, somebody told me what to believe. But it was the point in my life. And, and this is what we've got to understand. Our kids and young people have to eventually decide what they're going to believe. They can't just believe what you believe because you believed it. They've got to go through a process of, of making it their own. And sometimes it's, it's, it's a lot of upheaval. It makes mom and daddy nervous, right? It makes them nervous. But, but the reality is what the devil does in is he, he comes in and tries to convince you that since you had questions... There's no need even trying to be a believer. Come on. Why, why would you even try to be a believer or pretend like you're a believer? You know you don't believe or agree completely with all this stuff all the time. That's how the enemy works, right? Tries to take a, a, an, an issue or a wedge and drive a nail into your faith. Praise God. And, and here's the thing that I, that, I, that I thought during those times. I thought my faith will never be as strong as it used to be. Because I had these questions, because I had to go through this discovery process. My faith will never be as strong as I thought it was going to be. And certainly God will probably never be able to use me in any kind of way. And I just hope I can make it to heaven. Right? But guess what happened? Guess what happened? All of a sudden, it was settled. I mean, I can't remember the day or the moment when I'm like, Shazam, I don't have to worry with that anymore. It's all done. But I just realized, you know what? I'm not worried about that anymore. I just realized, you know what, I believe what I believe. And they can say what they want to say. Now, because of other young people going through this, I've done some study. And my faith in the Creator and the idea of God as a Creator of all things is stronger than it's ever been. But sometimes our faith has to go through a test and a trial. Can I talk to you about that right now? You may be going through some things in your life right now and you don't understand, why am I going through this? And, and you're wondering, you know, maybe this is going to be the undermining of my faith. This is going to take me out. I might have a hard time being a believer after this. But the reality of this, the reality is, is much different. That if you can hold on through the storm, the trial of your faith is going to work patience. And it's going to put you in a position to face things that you could never have faced before that trial came. Amen. Because God's got a plan for your life, and God's going to do some things through you. And He's not going to use something He hasn't tested, right? Uh, he's not really going to use something that He hasn't tried. And I look back now at that time in my life, and I look at some of the things that I've gone through in my life. Some, sometimes I say, if I'd have known all the things I was going to have to face in my life, I probably would have quit right at the beginning, right? Because I wasn't ready for it. But God gets us ready. And puts us through things. And sometimes it's the trial of our faith. And sometimes you just got to come to church whether you feel like it or not. 
Sometimes you got to praise God whether you feel like he's worthy or not. Uh, uh, come on, someone. And sometimes you just got to do what you know you're supposed to do. Amen. When there's no evidence that anything good is going to come out of it. How do you think old Joe felt in Egypt when he was sitting in prison? Probably didn't have a lot of faith at that moment, but he said, you know what? I'm going to keep doing what I was taught to do, and I'm going to keep believing what I was taught to believe. And when he came through the storm, God used him in a powerful, powerful way. And I want to let you know that no matter how many questions come into your life, how many trials buffet you and your little family and your household, if you will hold on by faith to the promises and the Word of God. Woo! Come on, somebody. Because the grass withers. And the flower fades. But the Word of God will stand forever. Praise God. Voltaire, the great philosopher from the 17th century, uh, the 18th century, he said, a hundred years from now, nobody will even own a Bible. A hundred years from now, they'll just use it in, in, in uh, uh, it, it'll just be in museums where people can come by and see, this is what we used to do. We used to believe in this stuff. But then when Voltaire died, the Geneva Bible Society bought his house and his printing press and started printing Bibles from the same printing press that he printed his brochures from. And 200 years later, advancements in science, advancements in technology, looking up into space and seeing the vastness of heavens, there's still a group of people that believe, Hero Israel, the Lord our God, is one Lord. He has created all things. He is the I Am. He is the self-existent one. He was there before anything was there. And He created all things for His pleasure. And by His Word do all things consist. Praise God. Praise God. Hallelujah. The Word of God is embraced by faith. By faith we understand that the worlds were formed by Him. But you don't have to embrace it with blind faith. You bring out the evidence and truth will always stand up. You hear me? Bring out the evidence. Give it a fair trial. And truth will always prevail. Lord Jesus, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for this time together, Lord, and I pray that we will grow thereby and our confidence in you will be strengthened. And we know that no matter what we face in life, that if we put our faith in you, our faith is properly positioned, Lord God, and your purpose and plan will be fulfilled in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody said amen. Amen. Before you go, uh, before, before we uh, speed out of here, I just want to let you know that if you, if you have had any questions, um, particularly about Genesis, and uh, you would like to know what some of the ideas or what the answer is, please let me know. Because uh, somebody said the other day, they asked me about the uh, giants, the Nephilim, in uh, Genesis uh, uh, chapter 4 or 5, I believe it is. So we'll talk a little bit about that uh, because um, uh, we'll just find out what the Bible has to say and what people believe about that. Amen. So you can... Uh...